Welcome to Love at First Science with me, your host and fellow inquisitive inquirer, lover of all things nerdy, Celeste. As a physiotherapist and neuroscience student, I love science, but I'm also interested in the world of business, creativity, psychology. So this podcast is going to interview all sorts of different people from many different backgrounds to gain an understanding of the science behind their passion. Here on Love at First Science, we're about to embark on Series 4, which is all about neuroscience. The panel is quite diverse. We're going to be looking at the female brain, hypermobility, herniated discs, and one of my all-time favorite topics, pain. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Sarah McKay. So this incredible woman has done so much with her time on this planet. In addition to being an Oxford University educated neuroscientist, she's also an author of the book called The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones and Happiness. In addition, she's a presenter, media commentator, and of course, more importantly than anything, she's a mum. Now, Sarah teaches people like me coaches and therapists, how to use different neuroscience tools for their work. Um, And in this episode, she's going to break down a number of common myths on the topic of the female brain. I'm positive you're going to love learning from her. So without much further ado, let's meet Sarah McKay. Very warm welcome to Dr. Sarah McKay. Sarah, it's such a huge honor to have you on Love at First Science. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Sarah, it is... um, such an honor because I came across your book demystifying the female brain and devoured it thought it was so insightful and incredible and I can't wait to talk to you about some of the amazing things that you wrote about in that book but before we get into all of that please can you introduce yourself and a little bit about your story how you got to where you are oh my goodness um it's really it's kind of I suppose what I do now is what I've done almost my entire career is think and talk and learn about neuroscience. And I I was one of those kids who I loved school, I loved learning, headed off to university thinking, oh, I'll do, you know, medicine or dentistry or physio or engineering or something. I wasn't really kind of sure which path I was going to go down. And and I was doing a first year psychology lecture and met and fell fell in love with neuroscience in a lecture where they were teaching us we were talking just before you hit record about synapses and they were teaching us about the synapse which is the connection between two neurons and I just thought it was the most beautiful and elegant and clever piece of machinery and to think that that was kind of at the the basis of how we think and feel and behave I was just I was just so captivated and that same um, course they recommended we read an absolute classic of neuroscience and neurology literature, which is Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which if you have read it, you will know why it was such a kind of a pivotal career moment for me reading that. And for those that haven't read or heard of the book, Oliver Sacks was a neurologist um, and he wrote these amazing case studies about things that go wrong with people when their brain malfunctions. And in this instance, it was about a man who used to get muddled up between different everyday objects. He had a strange kind of visual affliction. And in this instance, he thought his wife was a hat. So he was the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Anyway, it was just these kind of ideas collided. And at that point in time was the early 90s. And neuroscience as a discipline was really just starting to emerge in the universities, whereby they were pulling together the brain component of all these different 
silos of psychology and physiology and anatomy and pharmacology and psychiatry and pulling that together. So I transferred universities within New Zealand where I grew up, South Island of New Zealand, to, to um, change my degree to, to neuroscience. And, and that was it. And I was very fortunate um, did what every Kiwi and Aussie and South African probably does back, did back in the 90s at least, back when the world was at its peak. And so was I, um, went back, backpacking around Europe and um, ended up reading a nature magazine and a um, nature being a journal, a science journal, in a, um, in a library one day in Edinburgh, as, as you do. Most people traveling were probably in the pub, but I was reading a science journal and I, and I saw a scholarship to Oxford advertised in neuroscience and I was like well that's it that's what I'm going to go and do next and wow. so I've really um kind of had lots of really cool opportunities come my way but the sort of I suppose the line traveling through it all has always been this absolute love and passion for neuroscience I, I met a gorgeous Irishman when I was in Oxford and we now came to Sydney on a whim in 2002 for a year we're stuck in Sydney now it being you know pandemic life um, and I still just do neuroscience. I'm no longer in the research lab, but I absolutely daily indulge my love of talking about the brain, thinking about the brain, writing. I still read journal articles every day. Um, that's just, I think, the most fascinating subject that there is to think about. I suppose it's like the science of us. That's, that's, that's what it's all about for me. My love, it is so apparent your deep enthusiasm and passion for this topic. And oh my goodness, you're in such good company right now because ever since I discovered the brain, I was at university studying physio and one of the most, uh, I would say, enthralling uh, sections of the degree was the neuroscience segment. Mm -hmm. And the great privilege that I had of walking onto the wards and then you have contact with people that have severe neurological disorders. And while you were talking about um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, I suddenly mm -hmm. had a flashback to one of the patients. She was talking to us and her arm was just sort of gliding up as she was talking to us. And the head physio he was with was like, uh, look at your arm and she had literally no idea and she was all like flustered and like the arm came back down and there was this like realization that this thing had happened and from then I was just like wow mm. how can someone have something this physical happening to them and zero clue yeah 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 it's 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 endlessly fascinating <laughs> it, it, it really is and I, I just love the fact that there's it's, it's just about humans and who we are what we and why we do what we do and um, and just to kind of put a real scientific lens on that for me is in a way comforting <laughs> I, I, I you know I've, I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about people um, by studying neuroscience too and so it gives me it gives me a lot of hope I think as, as well we all, we all need a bit of that right now don't we absolutely it's been quite an intense time for all of us and I know that your book especially has offered such a great ray of light and hope and um, kind of uncovered some mysteries for people. And for those of you guys listening that don't know, Sarah has written the book, Demystifying the Female Brain. Um, I've got so many questions I want to ask you about this, but first, can you tell us about how you got to actually writing this book? Yeah, that's a really funny story because I have been in this neuro, you know, doing lots of neuroscience type education and communications for quite a while now um, 
and didn't really have any particular ideas for a book and in fact was was not really terribly enthusiastic about writing a book because I know how hard writing about science well is um, it's hard enough to write a good blog post let alone a book but I was approached by a book publisher very charismatic lady um, who's very persuasive who said why don't you write a book and I said I don't really want to but we <laughs> met over coffee and um I said, well, I haven't got any ideas. Like, how, what, what would I write about? And she said, oh, well, tell me what you've written in the past that has really resonated with an audience. And I had previously written an article on menopause and brain fog for the ABC here in Australia, like the BBC in the UK. And, um, and we had this just enormous response because essentially the article was saying brain fog can be a consequence of menopause, but it's not the first sign of Alzheimer's or dementia. So don't worry, here's what may be the underlying causes of that. And we just had so many people get in touch going, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I thought I had Alzheimer's, but I was too scared. I'm going to go to the doctor and talk about menopause instead. That, that type of response. And so my, my publisher, Jean Rickman, said, oh, well, why don't you write a book about menopause? And I was in my early 40s and I was like, ah, oh, that's something <laughs> my mum does. <laughs> I don't write a book about, I just have babies. And she said, what about baby brain? Isn't that a thing? And I was, it's just very, got shit's full of ideas. And I was like, baby brain is not true. I grew up in New Zealand. We don't do it there. And I had actually never heard about this concept of baby brain. I've got two boys now who are 11 and um, 13. And I'd never heard about baby brain until they were a bit older. And, you know, I'd be in mother's group and women would be talking about it. And I'm going, baby brain's a thing. What a load of rubbish. Uh, so, but then as we started talking about pregnancy and brains and menopause and brains, I was like, you know, there's lots of really interesting things to think about in terms of women's health, periods and puberty and pregnancy. And, and I knew that there were stats around women having greater risk of, of, of Alzheimer's disease later in life versus men. And I thought, well, that's a brain disease. I wonder what's underlying that. And similarly with anxiety and depression, I thought, well, is that just a case of more women getting diagnosed with it or is there a brain cause behind that? And I knew from a lot of the research work I'd done during my PhD and um, when I was actually working as a, research, a researcher in academia, um, that you really can't consider any point in the lifespan without looking at what has come before that, because our life kind of gets woven into our neurons. And I thought, really cool to take sort of a, a and it became bigger than Ben-Hur, like kind of a lifespan look at, at you know, things that happen through the life course of, of girls and women um, that are unique to us by virtue of our biology and take a look at, you know, the brain's role in that, how, it, how, how it's shaped by those events and in turn perhaps influences those events. Um, and that was sort of how, how the book was born, a womb to tomb tour of the female brain. And it's so beautiful the way you did kind of journey us through the different phases of life. And mm. I think one of the things that really struck out to me, um, I'm on a neuroscience course at the moment and they started talking about the homunculus. And I mm. was like, oh, oh, okay, there's this little map of us inside our brain. And they're like, yeah, but there's the maps of the female brain and the maps of male brains are actually different. So first thing I did off onto Google and I was like, female homunculus, nothing. Mm literally nothing and I was mm. like what and then your book as soon as I started reading it speaks about the gender gap and how mm. actually there's a lot of missing information when we're looking at the like tracking different um, stages of a female life and some of the things that females mm. engage in through different parts of their development um, can you yeah. shed some light on this 
uh, yeah. gender gap. Yeah, well, I think it's probably also really important at the beginning to point out that there's not really a female brain and a male brain. You can't kind of open the skulls of a hundred humans and see pink brains in the, you know, inside <laughs> the skulls of biological women. Even that's kind of a loaded statement to make nowadays. You have to be really careful when you start talking about sex and gender and you throw in neuroscience and it's a quagmire. But I mean, if we take just a really careful neuroscience look at it, in terms of, you know, a standard brain that we look at it, we couldn't tell whether it came from a male or a female. And once we start looking at microanatomy and physiology, even by and large, there's not a lot of differences. There's some regions of the brain which are unique to women for example brain circuitry that is involved with ovulation obviously men do not have that but but I think it's also really untricky when it comes to really untricky really tricky when it comes to humans to start to unpack you know are there certain ways of thinking or feeling and behaving that are unique to women or unique to men that we can attribute to neurobiology and kind of when it comes down to it there's just more similarities than there are differences so i'm not entirely sure whether there could be a female homunculus and a male homunculus in terms of um you know the the motor cortex and the sensory cortex because when we've all got fingers and toes and arms and legs and tongues and you know quadriceps muscles they might just be slightly different sizes because men's and women's bodies are different sizes um but you know that i i think there are events which happen to us which can shape and sculpt our brains. We know, you know, going through puberty is really significant. Although boys and girls go through puberty, there's enormous surges of hormones which kind of trigger the development of um, parts of the brain which are involved in things like social cognition. We see really significant changes in the brain taking place during pregnancy. Menopause, again, is a neurological transition. Um, so there are unique aspects <laughs> of our, our brains, which is sculpted by our female biology. But by and large, we couldn't say there's a male brain there and there's a female brain there. That was actually one of the and things. Um, that was, it, it was quite cool to read that because then I was like, oh, yeah. a lot of times you go to different cultures and they speak about, you know, I'm generalizing here, but some of the cultures where females are more oppressed. And I'm thinking, you know, sometimes they use terms like, you know, the woman is different and the woman belongs in an X, Y, Z realm. But then when you're looking at neurobiology and that deep science, you yeah. know, actually there's more similarities than differences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think people do often come to neuroscience wanting to seek support for gender stereotypes they may have. And, you know, there are differences, but there's still a lot more similarities. But that's not to say that we should lump all males and all females together and study them all as one kind of homogenous mass. There is, you know, there, there is, there is good reason for separating it out and looking at male and biological male and biological females separately. I mean, like what you said, there's a lot of, it still, it still amuses me. Um, and I was even speaking to a researcher earlier today, we were kind of laughing that women's health is still kind of seen as a, as a niche, as, as if women are a niche. <laughs> um, I mean it's utterly ridiculous right we're over 50% of the population just we're not niche but you know I, I think then it, then I kind of sound like I'm contradicting myself almost when I'm saying that like we should consider ourselves as different or we should consider ourselves as similar I think we we tend to think that a baby is born with a brain and that's kind of the brain it carries with it through through its lifespan but our brains are completely shaped 
you know, the, the kind of basic patterns laid out when you're born and babies are born in different places and different cultures and different families and different situations and circumstances all over the world and their brains shape and sculpt and kind of form to fit the world in which they live. And then us humans, it's so hard to unpack that nature-nurture question, which one is it? it? The two are intimately entwined, particularly when it comes to humans. Um, but that just kind of makes it interesting, I think. Absolutely. Um, and that that intertwined uh, nature, I mean, particularly with the environment that they grow up in, and especially um, something that I picked up on, and I kind of was like having a flashback to my own life and looking at the little girls around me, but there really is this uh, great amount of um, enthusiasm for boys to go out and risk and really, you know, kind of test the edges of boundaries and then the narrative for females is you know to be more careful and to be more they're more delicate and then how that kind of interplays in later life yeah yeah that's really interesting there's some interesting research that I, I speak about in my book and you know I was writing this book in 2016 17 and there's been so much more that's emerged since then but there's a, some really interesting research that's looking at this this kind of perception that girls have about little girls have about themselves and who they can be and what they can become as they get older and little boys. And when you look at five and six-year-old kids, they kind of all think that, you know, that you can, you, studies have been done, like you go into, into a group of five and six-year-olds and you read them a story about like a, an, an inventor or a scientist and you go, well, who's going to grow up to be an inventor or a scientist? And the little girls will go, me, and the little boys will go, me. And then when you look at the six, seven, eight-year-olds, and the boys will go, I'm going to do that. And then the girls will go, oh, the boys will do that. And similarly, if you present them with the games, this is a game I'm going to teach it to smart kids who want to learn. And the five and six-year-old boys and girls will want to learn. The seven and eight-year-old boys will want to learn and the girls will kind of hang back. Now, there's nothing that happens between the ages of six, seven and eight in terms of um, biology that, that differs between boys and girls. Like nothing's happening. They're just being kids. They're just and knocking along through their childhood, those golden years of childhood, they are picking up signals from so many multiple sources that are already starting to teach them. This, I, I must say, the study was done in the US, so it's a US focused study, it, and it will undoubtedly differ. It may be more extreme in some parts of the world and far less extreme in others. You know, the US was kind of where, where this work was done. Um, and we kind of see that in lots of different points in the lifespan, and even. Um, and lots of different aspects of what, what could even be seen as real, really, you know, sort of biological functions about, um, you know, aspects of women's health, even that the, the stories that we're told can influence a health outcome. Um, so it should hardly be a surprise <laughs> that little, little girls and little boys are starting to pick these signals up and, and taking on board these perceptions of who they are and, and, and what they can do and how they can behave I mean I see that I've got boys right and I always think about my oldest son is you know full of bravado he's 13 and he's at six foot tall and he's oh, spends a lot of time at six standing foot tall. The, yeah he's really tall and he <laughs> you know thinks he's he's quite you know the king of the jungle <laughs> and I was thinking a couple of years ago and he was 11 and he had to get a, a wetsuit and he had to buy a size 16 wetsuit and he was just like I'm the man I was thinking can you imagine like a 10 or 11 year old girl having to buy a size 16 wetsuit and just being like look at me girls <laughs> wouldn't probably be thinking that they'll probably be mortified um and you know I 
I must have played a part in that, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've got the boy who thinks he's the king of the jungle, not the little girl who's so embarrassed and sad that she's buying a size 16 wetsuit. They pick up all of this stuff, right? Um, and we must take some responsibility for, for, for that. Yeah, and I, that's what you were saying. I think you were saying that the brain is constantly changing and that obviously yeah, environments yeah. are shaping that change. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, I always talk about the brain. I think about the brain kind of sitting in the middle of our bottom-up biology. There's this constant signals streaming in from every aspect of our biology, from our genes to our hormones to our immune function to you know how our muscles are moving and what's happening in our gut and um, you know carbon dioxide levels and body temperature. We've got this constant stream of data coming into the brain. And then within the context of the world in which we live and the people that we're interacting with, and that's largely because we're humans coming in through our visual system. We're not necessarily smelling everything that's around us or <laughs> tasting everything that's around us like some animals, right? We're largely visual. Um, and, then, and then our brain's making meaning of that bottom up and outside in signaling based on um, you know, previous experiences and expectations and the stories we've been told by the people around us and you know, lived experiences that we've had. And you know, there's this, the, the brain is, this, is, is you know, constantly being shaped and influenced by all of these, and particularly through childhood and adolescence. The brain is incredibly plastic, is the word we now use, um, whereby the things that happen to it in the outside world shape it and change it. And then that plasticity, you know, we can still change as we get old, but it does get a whole, whole lot harder. It's far, far easier to learn multiple languages when you're two years old than when you're 42 years old. It's, it's, you're not going to become fluent in multiple languages at 42 in the space of six months. Um, that's because brain plasticity does dial down. The brain kind of needs to almost kind of settle into who it is so it can kind of carry on with living within the world mm -hmm. instead of constantly being shaped and, and molded and formed by that. Um, so, so, you know, childhood is just so, so important. That, that's sort of an adaptation, isn't it? To kind of settle into its place and not be so highly influenced by all of these factors coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, that's development, that's childhood, that's adolescence, you know, and we, we see that play out. You know, we've got the brain development aspect. We see that play out in terms of, you know, the, 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 the kind of behaviours we learn and personality emerging and temperament. And, um, you know, we see it through adolescence and the brain goes through a significant shift in terms of plasticity, especially in terms of things like social cognition, thinking about what other people are thinking and feeling, mm, um, aspects of emotional one. regulation. We see that play out in behavior. We see it play out in, 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 in the brain um, of, of young people. And we see that's when we kind of see them becoming from little kids into the humans and the adults that they, that they will be. Um, and that's, you know, because of the, the plasticity that we see in the brain at these different phases of life. One of the really big things that I think all of us females have to go through is obviously coming into puberty and then starting to develop a menstrual cycle. And in your book, you mentioned that actually there isn't a lot of evidence to support the fact that there is this PMS that women go through. And I, I was trying to tell my partner this and he was like, nah, -uh, girl, <laughs> I know different. That's perhaps uh, one of the <laughs> That's, that's one of the stories that people um, have picked up on most in the book. And um, and I suppose for me, I really went into this book. I'm, I'm, my background in neuroscience was in sort of brain development and plasticity. It wasn't an endocrinology. Like neuroscience is a massive, massive sort of field. And I thought, oh, well, hormones are really important. 
Um, but I was also kind of dubious, not being a believer in baby brain that, um, and, and certainly not being the kind of woman that had ever really kind of ridden any hormonal, emotional roller coaster that had never been, uh, was never really kind of how I was brought up and it was never part of my personal experience. But, you know, I, I went into this particular chapter looking at the role of, the, you know, kind of this monthly neuroscience experiment we've all got going on between puberty and menopause if you're not on the pill or pregnant, um, wanting to take a look at the role of hormones in terms of emotions and hormones and how we think. And the, and the cognition thinking, so cognition is really, you know, planning, being strategic, being able to, you know, decide what you pay attention to, being able to do mental maths, all of those kind of like higher order executive functions that we have in our brain. And I was really quite pleased <laughs> to find out that hormones don't really play much of a role in that, like, doesn't really kind of matter what time of the month it is. Um, we're pretty coherent. Um, our cognitive capacity is not necessarily impacted by, by our periods or not, which is great. And that's why we can all like go to work and do jobs and yeah. be physios or neuroscientists or, or whatever we want to do. But I thought well, emotions will be different. You know, people, women are always talking about how they ride a hormonal roller coaster. Although I did have reservations about that because I thought we're hormonal at puberty when our hormones are kind of kicking into place and we're emotional. And then we're emotional during pregnancy when hormones are at our peak. And then we're also meant to be emotional at menopause when the hormones are kind of going down. So like, do we want hormones or not? Because it doesn't seem to matter. We kind of blame the presence or absence for emotions. So I did go into it reasonably dubiously and interestingly found quite a number of different reviews that didn't necessarily support a large role for hormonal signaling in terms of very careful studies of emotion outcomes and I thought hmm, that's interesting I better look at PMS because that's the thing women are always talking about that so first first thing I would do I'll just go find the basic sort of stat for how many women in the world experience PMS but 10 percent 50 percent what is it it was really really hard to find a number and I was looking and looking and looking through the literature and it's not normally that hard to get a gauge on It'd be like, you know, how many women, how many people were diagnosed with depression in a year? You can kind of get stats on that reliably. PMS was really difficult to find. Then I found a meta-analysis, which was looking at rates of reported PMS around the world. And it was really, really interesting because it differed widely between countries. So some countries, France was, and France was kind of at the very, very low end, about 10%. There were countries that were kind of around 30%. Spain was one of them. So it's not like a regional thing because Spain and France were yeah, quite right different. Next to each other. And then yeah. some countries were around sort of 50%, which was the global average. And then some countries, particularly the Middle East um, and other countries where there's really low gender equality were really, really high. They were around 90%. So it was somewhere between 10 and 90% of women were putting their hands up and saying they had PMS, which I thought, well, that's really weird because if it's biological, how can it differ between 10 and 90%, like hardly yeah. anyone or almost everyone? And, and this paper was, was sort of saying, you know, there's a really strong social cultural um, narrative around PMS. And there was definitely, the statistics were pointing towards when there was less gender equality within a country, there were higher rates of PMS. That is so interesting. So I started looking into some of the feminist literature and then came across some work of a woman in, New Zealand actually a, a woman's health psychiatrist called Sarah Romans who 
just become frustrated with women coming into her, her psychiatric practice. And obviously she's seeing a sector of women with serious mental health issues being a psychiatrist, but they're all blaming their hormones. And again, it was like, well, when you've got lots of them, when you're pregnant, you're blaming them. When you've got none of them, you're blaming them. When they're going up and down, you're blaming them. And so she thought, I'm going to try and get to the bottom of this. So designed a, a study called the Mood and Daily Life Study, where women were asked to record their mood every day. And they were given positive and negative and neutral moods to choose from, because we can have them all. Um, day of the month and various other measures of stress, physical health, and social support but the women were not told it was a study looking at so-called pms and when all of the data was crunched from hundreds of women it turned out it was only about 10 percent of the women the more like french women showed any clear variation of mood based on hormone status 90 wow. percent of the women's moods shifted but they weren't influenced by day of the month they were influenced by stress unsurprisingly poor health but most significantly by the degree of social support they experienced which is interesting because it's one of the, and again, it's one of these outside in, it's mm -hmm. your mood is more likely to be impacted by the people around you and your interactions with them than what's being released from your ovaries, which I think is kind of fascinating. The PMS isn't, isn't a myth, but it's certainly not rampant. Not every woman is riding this emotional roller coaster driven by hormones. Some women are, some women are vulnerable or, or sensitive perhaps to that signaling. Perhaps they may be just more in tune with that bottom-up data. Um, but more, more of us are more, we're more French than um, <laughs> Middle Eastern, which is kind of a weird, I'm going to probably get in trouble for saying something like that now. I don't mean it like that, but in terms of how the data rolls out across the world, fits in with a lot of the feminist literature as well about PMS kind of giving women an excuse to be angry. Yeah, and <laughs> I just feel like women biology. Are women have been sort of vilified for that part of their body for so long and have been called words like hysterical since the beginning of time and yeah. I feel like it's very un very unscientific very unclear yeah. and, and uh, like terrible labels put upon women that are so untrue we, we insist on it ourselves and this PMS story I've talked about so much over the years and women get quite offended it's like but my hormones do make me angry mm. and I'm like well maybe they do but but if that's the only hook you've got to hang your hat on, you're not going to be, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, but there's, there could be a lot of things going on. And if you've decided it's hormones only, well, one, you can't do a lot about them. Like you're kind of stuck with them until menopause. Um, and then when you've got, you haven't got them anymore, you'll probably be sad as well. Um, but if we're looking for a lot of other causes like stress, I mean, who hasn't been miserable in the last 18 months? And I know it hasn't been to do with hormones, it's been to do with social isolation, lockdowns, you know, lots of choices that you've been able to make because of the restrictions that have been placed on us. That's been an incredibly, that's been an incredible burden and it's affected us all. Um, and I think if we only focus on one source of emotions, that, that being hormones, we, we lose the capacity to consider other options that we may have more agency over. That's really what it's about. It's not that it's a myth. It's just, let's not focus on that being the only reason why you might be sad. Briefly going to interrupt this episode to let you guys know that I am now the proud co-author of the book, Too Flexible to Feel Good. 
I co-authored this book alongside my friend Adele Bridges and we realized that there really was not enough information that's easy to digest out there for the hypermobile community. And so we came together and we poured our heart and soul into writing this book. And the purpose of it really is just to give you guys a fun, easy to use a roadmap on how to manage all the crazy comorbidities that come along with hypermobility. So you can catch your copy now on Amazon or at any major book retailer. Yeah, it's holistic. You know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I love neuroscience, particularly looking at pain neuroscience is pain neuroscience is like stop putting your blinkers on and looking at the body part that hurts. Yes. It's more holistic than that. It could be multiple threat factors that are interplaying. Pain is so fascinating. Oh, you know what? I'm like, like totally into all of this side of um, the, and I, this makes me sound, I'm not one of those microdosing, you know, Silicon Valley bro dudes, but, you know, <laughs> but, but all, you know, like you can, there's, there's all of the science and, and neuroscience research looking at the, the correlations between physical pain and, and social rejection and kind of social pain, loneliness, feeling yeah, left out. Big time. And you can and you can treat feelings of loneliness using over-the-counter painkillers. And I've tried that oh. a couple of times recently when I've just been feeling like terrible FOMO just because of the situation of the world and, and really like and, and social pain. And you can treat it with Panadol. Um, wow. And I'm not, I don't, we shouldn't be going and doing that. But I mean, that fits into that whole idea of what is pain. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really complex mind body contextual problem. It's, it's not like just like to do with the, the part of your body. It's, it's far more complex than that. And there's some really interesting ways to start thinking about the mind and the brain and the world around us and how they will interact. Um, I'm not so sad and lonely that I am having to treat myself with paracetamol, <laughs> but I have kind of played around with it just because it's, it's interesting. It's experiment. Like that's about as crazy as my life gets. I like taking some paracetamol. <laughs> yeah. This is what I get high on on the weekend, guys. It's a Panadol. But I think this is what's so beautiful about neuroscience is that when you understand neuroscience at this level, you'll look at something like PMS and you're like, guys, we put our blinkers on or pain and the blinkers have come on. Um, yeah. Now, I realized that, you know, hormonal tracking and that it kind of has this crazy crossover into the female brain. And that's why... Yeah these questions are coming up even though obviously you're not someone who looks solely at hormones but yeah. in your professional experience how important is it potentially for a woman to track their cycle is there any benefits cognitively that we can derive from that I think it's really really interesting um I only ever bothered doing it when I was trying to get pregnant okay. um and I certainly have never been felt that my hormones had much to do with my emotional state and that was kind of reinforced when I went into this doing this research and I, and I really went into it not pretty green within the neuroendocrinology space didn't know much about it and just kind of looking at the literature as it was I think that tracking your hormones is really great um, I'm not entirely sure whether I necessarily think it's the best way to um, manage fertility <laughs> You know, we've, wow. technology has advanced enough that we don't need to rely on daily tracking of hormones to either, you know, especially to not fall pregnant. I'm not necessarily sure it's the best contraceptive that there is. Um, we do have other <laughs> That's much, how my mom more got reliable, me. <laughs> yeah, much more reliable forms of contraception than daily hormone tracking. But I think as a, as a source of information, it's really good. 
the only the only issue I have is often it's packaged up in a at this particular time of the month, then you'll be feeling this way. And that just is really no different to at this time of the month, you're going to be feeling cranky and angry because you, it's premenstrual. You, you, it is, we, we, it is so easy for us to be influenced by expectation in terms of health outcomes. I mean, we've just talked about pain, something that people think is really biological and actually has a really an enormous mind-body context component to it. Um, so I guess my reservations from it come from people taking that as the sole indicator of health and deciding what's going to happen on that particular day and how they're going to be based on one health measure being mm. hormones when there's probably hundreds that you're not looking at and perhaps thousands of other influences on you um, that's I, I suppose that's my that's my caveat is that sometimes I think it's it's being oversold I don't think the hormones are driving the car <laughs> they're just one like passenger in the back yeah, I'm glad you said that because I'm terrible at tracking my period and everyone is always like, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm very resistant. Yeah. So it's good I've to hear someone like on you the say, I've, on. I've just always been on the pill and run it on, like don't even take yeah. a break. So it's always been a non-event for me and it always was a non-event even when I wasn't on the pill. Um, <laughs> makes me sound soulless nowadays because it's like, a, but it's, it's it's kind of of the moment to do that. And I, and I don't think that people shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, I just don't think that we should be making all of our decisions based on that as the primary metric of health. Um, yeah. You know, I think the PMS study shows that, that actually other people are as influential, if not far more in terms of, um, you know, emotional status. Yeah, absolutely. You touched upon... Um, birth control is there anything that's noteworthy within the realm of birth control that can have an influence on the brain yeah that's really interesting because that's despite the fact women have been taking um oral contraceptive pill for 50 60 years now um the study is taking a look at how that influences the brain are reasonably new and actually reasonably um you know, um, there's, there's no kind of horror stories. There's nothing kind of untoward going on that millions and millions of women for decades haven't noticed. We've all kind of got on fine. Those of us for many, you know, particularly my generation who took it for many years without even thinking about it, um, we've, we've kind of done okay. I know that younger generations of women are exploring lots of different options and I think that's also really cool, like more power, more knowledge, more information, whatnot. But um. That there's there's a, there's a couple of perhaps interesting things. There is a there is a lot of um, information coming out around that you're more likely to be diagnosed with depression on the pill. Um, and for a long time, there was a lot of anecdotal data saying yes. Luckily, some really interesting studies have come out, particularly from the Scandinavian countries, who are really good at gathering a lot of data about um, you know their citizens in terms of healthcare. So there's a lot of data sets they can look at. And the large studies that have come out looking at women on the pill is showing very, very, very small increases in absolute risk for a particular woman being on the pill. But the increase, if you look at an entire population of women who might be on the pill from ages, you know, 14 to or 12 even to 50, so your fertile years, you might see, I think that I think the increase is something from you might get, say, pulling these numbers. And from the recesses of my mind, something like 
four and four and a hundred women who are not on the pill um, would be diagnosed with depression over the course of a year and of the women on the pill five and a hundred so you're only seeing an extra one and a hundred women over the course of a year on the pill being diagnosed with depression but what's really interesting is if you start to stratify it by age and this is when we start need to start to think about adolescent brain development if you look at the youngest girls who are on the pill ages kind of you look at the cohort of 12 to 14 and then um, 15 and 6 15 to 17 um, those girls show a, a bigger increased risk of being diagnosed with depression than adult women. If you're looking at women 30 and above, you're not really seeing any change there at all in terms of diagnosis. So it's more so the younger girls. But again, it's a, it's a change from about, say, four or five and 100 girls up to about eight and 100 girls. Okay. So the increase is still really quite small. When it gets reported, it might get reported as something like, you know, an 80% increased risk, but it's still really a difference, with, you know, four or five and eight girls up to and hundred girls up to eight and hundred girls. Um, but that does show that there's perhaps some inter, interact sort of something going on there where there's an interaction between brain development, um, the sort of the settling in of the menstrual cycle in those early teenage years and perhaps some of that being disrupted by the pill. Or perhaps that the, could be it's really hard to unpack the reasons of why 12 to 16 year old girls are on the pill if it's for pregnancy prevention perhaps you know their, their relationships are more, more chaotic at that age there's so many factors in there to consider that can't necessarily just be unpacked from the data so I think it's really interesting to look very dispassionately at, the, at that data it's a bit just like looking at you know vaccine you know what's the risk mm -hmm. of something you know going you know getting cardiomyopathy if you're a teenage boy taking the Pfizer vaccine versus getting cardiomyopathy if you get COVID when you're a teenage boy and like being quite dispassionate about the risk factors um there's been there's been a lot of stories around the pill causing depression but the absolute risk for individuals is pretty small um and if you're taking it as pregnancy prevention an unwanted pregnancy is pretty depressing yeah. so there's, there's, there's so that story there. Um, that said there's also other really interesting data showing that um, the pill can be protective against developing anxiety in girls um, some, using the word girls women um, who, were, who were studied after sexual assault and they kind of stratified them out in terms of development of post-traumatic stress disorder and, and anxiety disorders of girls who are on the pill versus not the girls who are on the pill appeared to be more protected than the girls who were not wow. on the pill. Wow, so there does incredible. appear to be something going on in there. Again, there's mm. some kind of interaction, but we're still talking about quite small numbers. Um, many women are unaffected, but there does appear to be these subsets. So again, you know, it's it, it's um, it's still quite new early days in terms of unpacking this and getting the stories out into yeah. the masses and, I, and I'm definitely sensing a strong generational shift in terms of younger women taking more ownership over their bodies versus my generation of Gen X who's like just give us the pill and let us yeah. we'll forget about all of that and we'll just get on with and you know you we guys enjoyed just got on with it you guys just got were, on with yeah, yeah <laughs> there's definitely more there's more choice now women yeah 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 there's definitely and I, more options. I think that that's the thing if there's more choice more information more knowledge more power to you yeah, absolutely. Um, but what about the whole topic around mental health? You know, anxiety and depression. What are we seeing kind of in terms of the stats and females? 
Yeah, well, that's that's interesting, and they do vary vary by country, and a lot of that's difficult because, um, you know, a lot of it's around reporting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for a diagnosis of anxiety or depression, it needs to be recorded somewhere, and typically that's by going through the healthcare system, so you're not picking up everyone. People are falling through the cracks. So, so the really interesting studies that have been done are, are typically these longitudinal population-based studies, and the one I talk about in the book um, because it's an excellent study, but it was also where I did my undergraduate studies at Otago University is the Dunedin study where they've looked at um, over a thousand people um, who were born in, and I was always really disappointed because they were born um, in the mid seventies, like me in Dunedin, New Zealand. I was born four hours up the road in Christchurch. So I was always disappointed. I wasn't one of those babies. But anyway, they've been studied and poked and prodded and tested and had everything from, you know, their teeth to their brain scan to their exam scores at school to, you know, whether they've got married and had children of their own and those children poked and prodded and tested. And they've, they've had every every imaginable um, part of their life and their body um, studied for many, many years. And they've had really, really high retention rate. And it's, it's, it's a, an amazing study because of that. So basically the long story short is there's not a lot of data there's not a lot of gaps for the data to fall in, into and that's interesting because now that these people are sort of in the, the gen x is the, the kind of in their in their late mid late 40s now um it turns out about four or four out of five of them at some point in their lifespan have had some diagnosable mental health issue whether that be we're looking at the serious end of the scale, psychosis and schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, all the way down to your more bog standard, you know, perhaps a short episode of anxiety, which resolved itself, or perhaps a period of depression in their teenage years or postnatal depression um, and, and, and a new mum. And by and large, a lot of them resolved. There's a small subset of people where the problems are significant and ongoing. And those particular people, a lot of that can be traced back and the predictors are there from very, very early on in childhood, um, which is super interesting. But the, the large, the, the four out of five people, the, the majority of them have had some type of mental health issue, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's kind of resolved, which goes a long way to reducing a lot of the stigma and normalizing it. But I kind of think that you know, we're getting there anyway and a lot of conversations and particularly in the last 18 months, we've, yeah. we've had nothing else to do but talk about our mental health and find ways to bolster it up and, you know, kind of support each other virtually as much as we can. So I think those conversations are certainly starting to change. Um, if we look at, and it's interesting if, you you know, you kind of switch out sex, or biological sex and gender from that and and, and girls and women do have higher rates of diagnosis of anxiety and depression. Um, but then there's other issues which the, the guys struggle with more, things mm-hmm. like um, other types of mental health issues and, or even things like addiction, um, you know, violence and anger issues, those type, you know, there's, 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 there does tend to be a bit of a, a, a kind of a, the paths diverge slightly, um, but obviously you can get anxiety and depression too. Um, and what are the contributing factors to that? Again, it's all this bottom up, outside and top down. I, I, you know, all biological, yeah, you always talk about social that. and psychological. It's a mix. I always say there's like, there's so. If you look at depression, there's from the perspective of the brain, there are so many shades of blue, and there are perhaps as many paths into your particular shade of blue as there are people. There is 
It could just be poor diet, not enough sleep. It could be postnatal depression. It could be grief. It could be social isolation. Um, it could be, you know, some, you know, genetic predisposition you have to vulnerability to stress. Um, you know, the depression is kind of almost symptomatic of lots of maladies, I think. Also, it's like a lot of times women are more open to talking about things like anxiety and depression. And yet for yeah. men, it's, you know, it's, you are seeing them act out with things like violence. And is that potentially yeah. because they haven't got that listening ear to express their feelings? Yeah. You know, there's I so think, many factors. Think, yeah, I think there's a bit of that. And I think that that's why it's really useful when we, when we try and look at, at population-based statistics to look at these longitudinal studies where it wasn't to do with someone reaching out the people were in the study and they were being assessed. So the you know we the 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 data's got nowhere to go. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of there there for everyone to see. Um, so certainly mental health issues are probably more common um, than people might otherwise think when you look at those types of studies. But by and large, most people it's like a, it's like a broken leg or kidney stone. You know, sometimes yeah. it might take medical medical intervention to recover from. Um, but most people tend to do all right. Yeah. Given, 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 given TLC, they will. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes what's just missing, isn't it? And as soon as they have those, those big challenges, they end up seeking out the support they need. And then, yeah, you know, yeah. big changes can come from that. It's, it's usually from other people. <laughs> and really, yeah, that's, that's what we need. That's so often what the brain is seeking is, is connection with others. You've actually alluded to that a few times through this, and I actually wanted to talk about the social variables that can impact on our health. And I know that there is so much data to back up that actually later in life, what really predicts whether or not you're going to end up with some kind of disease or um, how it impacts your lifespan is really the social connections that you've built up around you. Yeah, it's one of the um, you know strongest predictors of a health outcome. Um, loneliness has the same, you know, sort of long-term severe social isolation loneliness has the same impact on health as smoking does. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is a crazy statistic. Um, but I don't think that, you know, in 2018, 2019, people might have been more surprised. I think this point in 2021, do, do we need to know that social isolation doesn't feel very healthy? We all know now because we've all had to go, we've all had to live through this pandemic and, and know what it's like to not be able to be with the people that we want to be with and, and how easily, even the most together, um, you know, Me. person like can, can fall apart when you can't be with the people that you love and need to, you know, like just the grief and the, the, the angst and the loneliness that so many of us have experienced. Mm -hmm. we, we know now. Um, and, it, and it is a strong predictor in terms of, of health outcomes. I mean, even like if we go back to the PMS study, that, you know, that that the strongest predictor of emotional state on any given day was social was perceived social support. Um, and I think, you know, if we want to, I don't know whether we can talk about pregnancy, but yeah, um, absolutely. One of, one of my, another one of my favorite studies in the book and um, potentially maybe the topic for another book, which may be underway, um, is taking a look at some of the changes in the brain that take place during pregnancy. Um, and, and largely they're around social brain networks, which I just think was totally fascinating. This was really new research when I was writing my book and the, the field has exploded since that during pregnancy, the main sort of influence in terms of 
uh, uh, sort of reorganization of the brain there's quite significant structural reorganization of of women's brains during pregnancy um and it's really can only be kind of hormones right and we're absolutely like bathing and and these you know thousand fold levels of of hormones that will that then we receive the entire rest of our lifespan combined um largely to strangely enough humans don't always agree but every other animal in the animal kingdom makes them smarter particularly estrogen is a cognitive enhancer it's in human women tend for some reason talk about baby brain but the rest of the animal kingdom gets smarter but the, the significant structural reorganization that takes place in human women's brains is, is, is largely in social brain networks and thinking about what other people are thinking thinking about what other people are, are feeling um, and if you look at all the scurrying little animals of you know the, the world out there outside humans um, we see the emergence of maternal with so-called maternal behaviors when you know a, a little mouse has a little litter of baby mice she hasn't read books on what to expect and she's expecting in parenting books she knows exactly what to do and how to feed them and how to keep them all together and warm and protect them and they are all uh, you know innate maternal behaviors that come about by how her brain changes and so if we look at humans and we look at how our brain changes it's in terms of social connection and it's you know it's our body is pre preparing our brain priming our brains for the act of motherhood not just getting our boobs ready to be able to feed a baby yeah. and you know push the baby out and we're giving birth but actual you know the act of caregiving our brains are primed to be able to do that we don't always necessarily every woman do it well or find it easy um but certainly the parts of the brain that are changed are involved with interacting with other people it was really fascinating looking through some of your past posts and realizing that I think there was a bit of data somewhere. You mentioned that women that have had multiple pregnancies actually show slower brain aging. Yeah, that's I really cool. I was just recently. thinking, yeah. what? I, think, I would have I think thought it would be higher. There's a bit of a, a, a U-shaped curve in there. I think once you hit over four babies, it sort of starts okay. to reverse. Um, so there's kind of, you know, have a couple two or three or four you know and then it's and then it might be a bit a bit too much um but yeah there's really and this is reasonably new data that's actually come out of um a phd student called winnie orchard in melbourne who's been working in the space looking at um you know scanning the brains of elderly women and comparing the brains of um women who had babies and raised them versus um, women who've never had children and the, the mother's brains were younger looking um, wow. and more resilient, certainly to some of the diseases of aging and more protected against dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Now, again, is that due to pregnancy itself and they, all these, you know, kind of soaking and all of these hormones during each of the pregnancy, which is in somehow built in some sort of biological resilience, or is it the act of caregiving, um, you know, you're constantly up leveling if you've got kids looking after them you know you've got to be on the ball for years and and then they kind of learn new tricks that you've got to kind of master um you're it's always ever changing yeah 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 I've like got 13 year old boy at the moment and oh my goodness it's like it's, it's like living with a lawyer <laughs> like debating not why he can't play Fortnite at 1 30 a.m um <laughs> and like he's almost winning the art and I'm like maybe well maybe you've got a point I don't know <laughs> so you, you can't you know whether that's making my brain younger or it's aging me faster at this stage it feels like it's aging me 
but certainly if you look at the brains of elderly women, the mothers had younger looking brains. So that's really cool wow. research. And I suppose to find, you know, what would be would be to compare adopted mo- adoptive mothers with birth mothers. And I'm not sure whether the cohorts are big enough yet to unpack those differences. So thank you so much for your insight on that. Um, one of the things I really wanted to uh, champion with the conversation around brains and the whole podcast in general is practical tips, tips and tools people mm. can kind of go away with and they can implement immediately and it can make an impact on their day-to-day life. Have you got any to share with us through your journeys? Yeah, I think there's perhaps two. The first is what I was arguing with my 13-year-old about the other night is sleep. I think it's vastly underrated, um, underappreciated, and no one does it enough except perhaps me and I probably could argue that I almost sleep too much. I love <laughs> love my sleep um I, I can easily smash out like 10 hours a night and, and have a nap um and <laughs> I, I also that. think when we when we start to look at you know if we start to look at even at the female brain and the woman's lifespan and we look at like pregnancy and we look at menopause and we look at times when um you know we're starting to feel emotional or forgetful or fuzzy or foggy or whatever words we're wanting to use kind of the missing link in a lot of this is, is sleep and lack of sleep in menopause a lot of the, the, the issues around emotional regulation and brain fog um, and, and, and even around sleep and, and menopause a lot of it's long story to get into is around issues with thermoregulation disrupting sleep which is having really negative knock-on effects in terms of brain health outcomes pregnancy new mothers we don't need to really even new parents talk about how important sleep is because we all know how hard it is when you when we're missing it but I you know I children need sleep my 13 year old needs more sleep than what he thinks um I think that it's absolute core and foundation of all good brain health and if there's nothing else that you go away and do after listening to this is to try and learn a little bit more respect for the light dark cycle and to understand that of course there may be slight variations in terms of individuals going to be a little bit later and waking up a little bit later by and large we're not designed to be awake when it's dark with lights on at all we didn't evolve like that um and you know respect the fact that we've evolved as animals on a planet that spins on its axis as it goes around the sun and every cell in our body has a, a biological circadian clock um that's driven by light and dark so that's probably number one and we all know how bad we feel if we get sleep. And the second is perhaps going back to this theme that's come out from the conversation and certainly came out from the book with me was I went into thinking I was writing a book about female brain and biology and it was about going to be about hormones, this ovarian signaling, which is going to drive everything. And when we looked at, you know, puberty, we looked at pregnancy, we looked at PMS, we looked at menopause, looked at what little newborn babies need and what people in aged care need, the, 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 the strongest signal was other people. What we need more than anything is other people. The most powerful, important thing for one brain is another brain. Um, so much of the signaling that comes into our brain is visual, which is the interactions that we have with other people. And um, for me, that was kind of the biggest surprise, but sort of the loveliest story to come out of that. And I think we all kind of, we know now after the pandemic, what it's like not to be with people we love. But if we think back, at, at, you know, kind of think back across the landscape of your life, 
no one's story is kind of one of their own. It's always about the other people that we've been with. And that's because that's what our brains are wired for. We are these deeply sensitive animals that evolved to be surrounded by other deeply sensitive animals. And um, that's where our greatest joys and greatest pains come from. I think that that should be a t-shirt, what brains need are other brains. <laughs> that's a very cool statement, Sarah. I love that. And, and never a true word spoken. And I suppose the, one of the questions I always end all the conversations with that we have on this podcast, and it can be related to brains and it can be related to your past life experience and motherhood, whatever, whatever you want. But it's like, what message would you have for the world? If you could share a message with every single person with all of your wisdom and knowledge, what would that message be? Well, let's talk about a bit early. I love how you're into sleep so much. It's yeah, great. I, love, I, I, don't, I don't think people go to, I don't think people get enough sleep. I agree. That's, yeah. I'm in your camp. I'm like, a big sleep, sleeper. Sleep, sleep and social connections. Go to bed earlier. Okay. Then let's, let's just have that as the bumper sticker then for the world. <laughs> go to bed early and have a cuddle. Well, earlier, not early. Earlier. Yeah. Earlier than what you currently do. Normally do. Don't go early enough. Okay, perfect. I'm, I'm like, like 10 past nine here and I'm like, you're like, come on, Sal, let's wrap this up. Like, <laughs> but I like so I'm going to give it 10 hours, 10 hours out before the sun rises. Let's do it. No, let's fine, do it. Fine. I'm, just, I can I can go just for one night and go to bed later. Powering <laughs> through, Sarah, I like your style. Um, burning the candle at both ends. Can you just at least share for us where people can find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So I've got a website, drsarahmackay.com, and that's kind of a perhaps the main portal through to everything I you know, I have my moments when I'm very on Instagram, online on Instagram, and then I kind of have a re-rest. I'm like, I'm too old for this. I need to go and have a nap. You do a good job. Um, so yeah, I do a bit on Instagram, which I, I think is a really wonderful medium for science education and communication. And um, I, I have so much fun working in that space. I teach online courses in neuroscience as well, particularly for professionals who want to learn a little bit more about applied neuroscience. And um, there's my book, and there's perhaps another book in the works. Oh, I cannot very wait early for days, it. It's just um, a butter twinkle in my eye. It might not even yet be gestating. I think that knowing you, you'll probably end up knocking that one out and giving us all the pleasure of reading it. And guys, just to remind you that Dr. Sarah Mackay's book is Demystifying the Female Brain, which I highly recommend. You've also got a bunch of TED Talks out there, which are fascinating. Just you've I'm had such a rich sleep. career. Yeah, <laughs> such yeah. a rich TED career. <laughs> yes, I know. And it made me feel better about myself because I'm such a big proponent for naps. And everyone's like, oh, no, I can't nap. I'm like, you do not know. Oh, what's no, no, you nap. You nap. Yeah, I nap. I now love it. So thank you so much for your time. I know how precious it is, especially for joining us late all the way from Australia. And guys, please do give Sarah Mackay the, the great support that she deserves. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Love It First Science. And of course, thank you for all of your support. And if today we spoke about any topics that resonate with you or perhaps you feel could help someone in your life, please do share this episode. Remember, you can also support the podcast by leaving a review. And guys, it really helps more than you could realize. So thank you for taking the time to do that. It does only take a couple of minutes. That's all for now. I'd like to wish you love at first science.